Stop! Sure you want the rest of it? Welcome back to Dirty Harry Minute. This is Trent again. Today we've got a very special episode of Dirty Harry Fan Fiction. What we've done is to get some past guests to come up with pieces of plot, little vignettes that take place off screen in the movie. Or shall I say, the Dirty Harry universe. The original novelization of Dirty Harry by Philip Rock had some nice short chapters about Scorpio's thought processes and his backstory. We wanted to do a similar thing, but with Harry himself. I understand we're going to finally hear what we've always wanted to know. What exactly did take place with Harry in the Fillmore District? Anyway, please enjoy the episode. Red Cross Calling by Mitch Grinter Elliot straightened his tie, squared his jaw, and strode purposefully to the dilapidated red door in front of him. The house seemed to be the only one on the street that hadn't been renovated recently, and that was precisely why he picked it. The sole of his new brogue struck the wet step in front of him. He counted the steps in his head as he walked, a trick he'd always used to calm his nerves. One, two, three, four. Remember the training. Look them in the eye. Be polite. Always be closing. Don't take no for an answer. You're here to do good. Eight, nine, ten. He had reached the stoop, and he paused for a moment to see what clues the building had to offer as to its inhabitants. An exposed brick facade surrounded entirely by white weatherboards, about a third of the width of its immediate neighbours. Simple folk, surely. Kind. The perfect place to start. Elliot's first day on the job could have been better. It was a wet, sticky, warm day in San Francisco. Not ideal conditions to be wearing a tie for the first time in six months. Still, he was grateful for the work, and for the minimum one-week stay of eviction it would guarantee. He reached out towards the door, took a deep breath, and he knocked. "'What the hell do you want?' Everything Elliot knew about the job quickly left his brain via his widening eyes as he was confronted with a six-foot-three-inch frame. The voice had come from somewhere above the body, this much he was sure of, but it took him a moment to bring his gaze up from the red woolen vest that was nearly pressed into his face past the tie, in a Windsor knot that seemed somehow fashionable and simultaneously outdated. Up and up, the face started to take chiseled shape, and it was not here to be messed around. Well, spit it out, Skinny. Uh, sir, uh, hello. My name is Elliot, and I, I'm, I mean, if I could ask your name, 
Name's Inspector Callahan. But I don't think you're out here knocking on doors to meet the neighbors. Oh, no, I'm... I'm perfectly happy with my current long-distance phone calls, and I don't need a new vacuum, so why don't you make us both happy and be on your... Inspector Callahan's voice trailed off. But Elliot didn't notice. He knew he had completely screwed up step one and step two, but he was damned if he wasn't going to nail step three. Sir, I'm here today collecting for the Red Cross. You strike me as the sort of man who cares about his neighborhood, and, like your neighbors, you understand that we need to look out for those who can't look out for themselves. Well, sir, that's what Red Cross is for. For just one dollar per week, you can improve the life of... Elliot's voice was interrupted by a blood-curdling scream. He left his body and became aware of every sound around him. The snicked of a knife scraping into brick, the slap of bare feet on the wet sidewalk, and another slap, a different sound. Yes, unmistakably flesh, slapping flesh. Elliot spun his head around in time to see a blur in the shape of a young woman wearing a college t-shirt and a white skirt tearing down Bush Street in the direction of the Fillmore District. A couple of yards behind her was a stark naked man brandishing a six-inch butcher's knife and with a crazed look on his face. Elliot suddenly realized the origin of the flesh-lapping sound. As each stride the maniac took, made his erection terrifyingly obvious for all to see. The two figures continued down Bush Street before the woman made a right at Steiner Street and they quickly disappeared from view. He felt a hand on his shoulder. Hey, kid. Yes, sir? You said you were here for the Red Cross? Yes, sir. He with you? No, sir, no. Hmm. Didn't think so. Inspector Callahan was already moving past Elliot as he said this and had already removed a revolver from his holster that would have rivaled the size of the chaser's... knife. He moved with an unexpected grace down the steps and onto Bush Street, and within seconds was making the same turn onto Steiner. Elliot stood frozen in the doorway, unable to get the sounds out of his head. Snicked, slap, 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 snicked. And then three new sounds. Blam! 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 Screaming now the sound of a crowd fleeing, a long pause, silence, and then, blam! Scorpio Summer by Evelyn Hamlet Charlie couldn't believe they were making him work. It was 90 degrees outside, and it felt like the sun couldn't get any hotter. The warm sun beat down his back as he shuffled across the football field, spraying the pesticide across the grass. When he took up this job as a groundskeeper, he assumed it would be easy, and it mostly was. Right now it was off-season for football, only the occasional team or cheerleader practice now and then. But still the field grass needed to be maintained. He did enjoy it when the cheerleaders practiced. The radio was sitting on the grass behind him while he worked, Blurring that song the guys at the bar would sing when they drunk. What a stupid song, he thought. Joy to the world, all the boys and girls. Joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea. Joy to you and me. He let the music fall into the background as he continued his work, his mind drifting back to why he was here. It was supposed to be the perfect summer job, but it was also his reintroduction to society 
as the doctors at the hospital put it, whatever that meant. As much as he wanted out of that hospital, he was scared about what was waiting for him once he was on the other side of the gates. But as it turned out, nothing. There was no one left who remembered him, no family or friends waiting for him, but that didn't matter. It was a chance to start again, a blank slate to become whomever he chose. He liked working as the groundskeeper, and his list of daily chores kept him busy. The job also meant he had somewhere to live. The maintenance room was cozy enough, and he could save on rent. But it could be strangely eerie at night, living in the bowels of the concrete stadium. During peak football season, there seemed always to be other maintenance staff around, and it was crazy during the games with fans everywhere. But during summer, it was so quiet around here, you could hear a pin drop. Charlie stopped working for a moment and put down the industrial-sized chalk gun to pull a white handkerchief from the pocket of his pants. The radio port had said today would reach the low 90s, but it felt even hotter standing in the middle of the open field with no shade to hide beneath. He was almost done with his task, and then he could take it easy for the rest of the day. He could go to the public pool to cool down, or just an ice cream, perhaps? The hospital never let the patients have ice cream. Always jello. He had had enough jello to last a lifetime. One time, at another institution when he was younger, he had hidden in the janitor's closet, and they attempted to lure him out of it with the promise of unlimited jello cups. He chuckled at the memory. If they had offered him ice cream instead, he would have probably dropped the syringe immediately. As he packed up his field equipment, he could hear one of the daily maintenance men shouting behind him. Charlie turned to see Mike gruffly stomping across the field toward him. Hey, Charlie! I've been calling you for the last 20 minutes! So sorry about that, I, I didn't hear you over the music, Charlie stuttered. Mike stepped over to the radio and switched it off. The boss wanted a word with you before you clock off. One of the pipes in the women's bathrooms is leaking, and it will be a while before the plumber is able to fix it. Can you take a look? Charlie nodded. Sure, I'll go now. I I'm finished here. Mike helped him with the equipment back to the maintenance rooms under the bleachers. Mike was chatting away while Charlie nodded and said yes at all the appropriate moments. Mikey stopped walking. Did you just hear a word of what I just said? Huh, what? Yes, yeah, sorry, I was just thinking. Charlie was never one for active listening. If you don't pull your socks up, the boss is going to fire you. You've already got one strike for that mess you caused with the 49er cheerleaders. Charlie smiled wryly at the thought. He regretted nothing. You're weird, Mikey said, not interpreting the other's expression. Anyway, you go see the boss now before he gets impatient. I'll clean up here, Mikey said, shooing Charlie away with his hand. Charlie handed him the last of the equipment and silently made it up the stairwell to the management office. It was another hour till Charlie was able to finish work, and his boss wasn't happy with him, the old coot. He went downstairs to his maintenance room to clean up, showering in a recess with the hose they cleaned the stadium mower with. He kept some Costco shampoo in a discarded oil can. His mind was set on ice cream, and the prospect of the cool, icy treat was making him salivate. He threw in a white crew shirt and his brown cardigan. He thought it might be a good idea to have something warmer with him in case he decided to stay out later. He often liked to walk through the park or the panhandle. Sometimes he also liked to walk around the UCSF campus, which was nearby. He walked out of the stadium and towards Ninth Avenue. There was an ice cream and soda parlor there he would occasionally visit. He mostly went because there were always nursing students around on study breaks. The girls in the candy striper outfits working at the parlor were always nice to him. There was one in particular, Anne-Marie, who was always nice to him. 
She had dark brown hair with green eyes, and her hands were soft and delicate when she would hand him his ice cream cone. He headed into the shop. He was in luck. Anne-Marie was behind the counter, and they made eye contact as she greeted him. The shop was bustling due to the hot weather. Charlie stepped into the five-deep customer line and began to wait. Two girls were in line before him, talking and giggling loudly. One was tall, one was short, but they were both slim, and blonde with hair just past their shoulders. The tall one had more curves, Charlie noted. I still can't believe you're dating that old guy, the short one said to the taller one. He's so good to me. He bought me a Chanel bag last week. He's staying in the presidential suite at the Holiday Inn, and he has exclusive access to the rooftop pool. It's so cool, the other gloated. Well, be careful. He's probably got a secret wife and kids he hasn't told you about. I'm not stupid. I did my research. He's the son of some senator. We get to go to all these exclusive parties. Hugh Hefner is a friend of his father's, so they go to all the Hollywood parties. Next, yelled one of the shop assistants. The line shuffled slowly forward. What flavor are you getting? The cautious girl asked the playboy girl. I'll get strawberry and chocolate. Best of both worlds. Okay, I'll have boysenberry. Cool, cool, let me pay for this, the playboy girl said, pulling out her leather purse and a $50 note. This one is on Daryl, she giggled. Charlie couldn't help but overhear their vapid conversation. In fact, the whole store could hear the dribble they were spouting. Teenage girls are so stupid, he thought. He closed his eyes, wishing he could muffle out their voices. Next! The line shuffled forwards again. Charlie stepped forward, his eyes still closed as he focused his thoughts inwards. Next! Does your sugar daddy have a friend? The short one asked. You should come to the next hotel party. There's one next Friday. I wish they'd just shut up, Charlie thought. Girls were nice to look at, but horrible to listen to. Next! Charlie stepped forward immediately and straight into the back of the tall blonde girl. His hands fumbled as he almost fell over into her. Hey, watch where you're going! The tall girl turned her attention back towards Charlie. Did you just touch my ass? She accused him. No, I, I, I misstepped. Didn't mean anything by it. Charlie smiled and lightly chuckled as the words came out of his mouth. It was a legitimate accident, but he thought they deserved a little performance. He put his hands up as if he was being arrested. She looked at him hard for a few seconds. Don't do it again, creep, she said and turned her back on him. That word again. Always directed to him. He didn't creep. He was bold. He took what he wanted. He was Scorpio. The girls ordered their ice creams and moved for the door the short one giving Charlie dagger stares. Sorry again, Charlie waved to them as they left the shop. Next! Charlie looked up, and a pair of clear green eyes were staring back at him. What can I get for you today? He fumbled for the words. Uh, uh, I'd like a cone, please, with, uh, a lemon. Would you like to try our special chalk mint while you wait for us to scoop that? Uh, no, please, just a lemon. One scoop. Are you sure? Just a sample? It's really delicious. No, thank you. Just the lemon, he said firmly. Okay, she shrugged. He walked across the ice cream case to pay, and handed his coins to the young man working the register. Those girls were a bit much, weren't they? The young boy said as he took the coins into his hand. Ah, it's all right, just a misunderstanding, Charlie told the young man. The young man looked back at him as if he knew all his secrets. Charlie quickly averted his gaze and shuffled along. Anne-Marie was over in a minute and handed him the cone, soft hands. Thank you for waiting, she said cheerily. Have a good afternoon, she smiled finally. Charlie smiled back at her. He walked with ice cream in hand to the tram stop. As he licked his delicious cool lemon snack, he thought he might switch up his plans for the afternoon. Maybe a trip uptown to the financial district. Might be nice to check out the Holiday Inn and see what all the fuss was about.
Three Quarters of an Hour by Jonathan Bampton. Harry strode into room 200. Opposite the entrance were two windows. And to the right, two office desks joined together. There was an unrecognizable blue flag collapsed in the corner of the room. For a municipal office, it didn't look particularly impressive. The secretary, Carol, had an arch lamp positioned over her desk, but the workspace itself was free of documents to inspect. Harry had forgotten how many wooden panel doors there were in the mayor's office. They were of the same French polishing as the walls, and were almost camouflaged to the untrained eye. The inspector knew that behind one of them lurked the mayor's actual parlor, and, at the end of it, if memory served correctly, an almost train-carriage-like corridor, dark as a coal pit. Harry turned to face Carol. He smiled at her and pulled out a piece of folded calico, placing it on the desk in front of her. It was a lady's handkerchief, intricately embroidered, but of no use in his Spartan personal life. I found another one. Probably the last, I should think. Carol tilted her head to the side. Thanks, she said, feigning gratitude, the pretense lost on Harry. I know just where to put it. She wished to herself that this was indeed the last one. Surely he'd run out of her things by now. Carol had only met his wife once or twice anyway. They had been in the same typist pool. Helen there? Yes, and the mayor. Marvelous, smirked Harry, sitting down on an aqua-green chair. I'll wait, Carol smiled perfunctorily. She waved the handkerchief at him briefly, and then her chin darted down to whatever had previously occupied her before Harry had entered. Am I the only woman he knows? Carol thought. Harry stretched out his legs as he twitched in his small seat. This would be the first time Harry had ever met the mayor. He'd voted for him, true, but only on the basis of a single snippet he had heard on television, something about promising to give the police the tools they need to move troublemakers on. That sounded like a good start. He didn't normally vote, but the police union seemed to think the candidate would make a difference. Only time would tell. He certainly had no time for that liberal Finnegan guy. Minutes passed, and Harry decided to walk to the window. They shouldn't be too long, Carol said, taking the hint. Yeah, said Harry. Through the glass, he looked down at Civic Center Plaza. It was a bright, sunny day, and it had been a bright, sunny day when that poor young lady was shot on the Hilton rooftop pool. What was taking them so long? He had better things to do. The computer boys had promised to show him the patterns, and he had a number of rooftop prowlers he wanted to double-check, too. There was tons to do. And what could possibly be achieved, running it all by the higher-ups and useless facemen? The silence of the room was interrupted by one of the wooden doors opening suddenly. An Hispanic-looking gentleman, with thick black glasses, was led out by an aide. Thanks for coming in early, the aide said. The mayor wanted to congratulate you before you started. Harry turned back to the window, disinterested, as the two concluded their conversation. That poor woman. The guy at the Bank of America building didn't want to let him up to look for the sniper casing. Harry had stared the guy down, but it still smarted him inside. Back at headquarters, Harry had made a rough facsimile of the sicko's letter for his files, before he handed the original to the homicide psychologist. After more than a year, Harry was still unsure the value of a profiler. Was it worth it? What did the new guy really achieve sequestered away in his own small but private office? He had a fern, for Christ's sake. In a department, that was a sign of prestige. An hour later, he had been told to report to City Hall, and so here he was. By the center tree in the plaza, Harry spied a curly-haired man arrogantly parading by. He wore a peace symbol buckle, or was it an anarchist logo, and some mauve cardigan, evidently obtained from goodwill. My God, what has this city become? 
Good thing the chief hadn't made it past the 1960s. Before he walked out of view, Harry noticed the hippie was eating green-colored ice cream. Fucking fruit, he thought. The inspector's mind tuned into the unmistakable feeling of something in his jacket. He reached in and pulled out his diary. He must have left it there on his last important occasion. It was his most important suit, after all. What was all this, then? Probably a diner, and probably with his old chums, Charlie and Carol McCoy. Something seemed a little off with Charlie that night. What was it? Hmm, not sure. Harry shrugged off the bad memory at the precise moment his stomach rumbled. God, he was hungry. He wanted a hot dog. Dry and jumbo-sized. Jaffe would sort him out. He glanced at his watch. Calm the fuck on. What was happening? The intercom phone buzzed. Carol turned to Harry. The mayor will see you now. Harry took a step to the door the Hispanic gentleman had exited out of. Marvelous, Harry said to nobody in particular. He opened the wooden door and stepped into the coal pit. A Hot Dog Day Afternoon by Stuart Rice Every day started the same for Jaffe. Open up, put on the coffee, fire up the grill, wipe down the counter, and wait. Mornings were slow, which gave him some time to think. Sometimes Jaffe would reflect on the last 20 years. Had it really been that long? He'd started out just working weekends to make a few extra bucks helping out Uncle Joe. Joe ran the place then, but he was starting to slow down, and needed someone to run the till and keep the place clean. That's the way he'd pitched it, at least. But Jaffe was drifting and Joe knew it, so he threw him a lifeline. Maybe Mum had called in a favor, got in Joe's ear and asked him to keep Jaffe out of trouble. Weekends turned into weekdays, and before long, the money became hard to turn down. And it's not like he had any other options anyway. Jaffe had dropped out of high school and bumped from dead-end job to dead-end job, painting houses, cleaning the local high school, picking up roadkill. He'd usually last a couple of months. He never quit so much as just stopped showing up. Jaffe wasn't stupid, though. Mum always said he had potential. Sure, he wasn't book smart, but he could have done other things. She'd even suggest Jaffe sit the civil servant test, get a nice cushy government job, and a guaranteed pension. But he was good at cooking, if that's what you called this. And sitting behind a desk never suited him anyway. Cooking dogs and broiling patties was the only gig that stuck. Soon days turned into years, and before long, that was all he knew. When old Joe had a heart attack right behind the grill, Jaffe found himself earning the joint. And that was all she wrote. Twenty years gone. Maybe twenty to go. Maybe less, God willing. Business was never great. Sure, he had the regulars. Just enough to barely pay the rent. The office workers at lunch, the tourists, and the man that called himself Callahan. So serious, always on the alert, and always ordered the same thing. Hot dog, onions, definitely no ketchup. Callahan wasn't much for small talk. He'd just sit there and squint, eyeing off the joint, sometimes murmuring to himself, That's a good dog. There was something comforting having him around, though. Jaffe didn't know whether he was a cop or an overzealous P.I., the bulge in his pocket said he was carrying, and he seemed to be on the right side of the law, even if he did play by his own rules. Recently, San Francisco had been changing. The buildings were getting taller, the streets were getting tougher. Maybe the old-fashioned diner was a thing of the past, with fast food and drive throughs becoming the new fad. San Francisco was starting to attract some real lowlifes, too. The 60s were well and truly over. Corner stores turned into dirty bookstores and a hooker stood on every corner, and some creep called Scorpio was terrorizing the city. Jaffe never liked the hippies, but at least he understood them. This was a new breed of creep. Take the other day, 
Three seedy-looking guys came in and just sat, ordered coffee, and stared at the bank. They didn't look like friends. Something was off. One of them had mumbled something about feeling lucky, whatever that meant. It wasn't a race thing either. Jaffe was no square, but he'd served Black Panthers that were friendlier than these crooks. Jaffe dreamed of walking away from it all, maybe getting a small boat and living on the water. It wasn't like he had anyone to pass it on to anyway. No wife, no kids. The women don't exactly line up for an average-looking Joe with no money, who works long hours and smells like grease. The way things were going, he'd end up the same way as the old man, probably even drop right there in the same spot behind the grill. If only something would happen to take the place out. A fire, a car through the window, anything that would set him free. Barring some unforeseen event, though, today would be more of the same. And tomorrow, Jaffe would do it all over again. Harry Buys Some Pants by Glyn Francis Harry needed some new pants. He tried to save his old pants. He went through pain to try to save them. Why? Because they cost twenty-nine fifty. damn it! Why would a cop spend so much on pants? Because Harry Callahan was a mystery, wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a further cloak of secrecy. Harry cared a great deal about pants. They had to be made of the right fabric, preferably Italian, and they had to fit right. Most of Harry's antisocial behavior stemmed from his pants obsession. He just couldn't respect anyone who wasn't wearing a quality pair of pants. Harry lived on hot dogs so he could afford his special pants. So strong was his obsession. Harry got his pants custom made for him. It was the only way to get the fit right. The guy making the pants was named Giuseppe something something, some ethnic name. Some friend of Jaffe's that came highly recommended. But damn if that ethnic name didn't make a fine pair of pants. Unfortunately, Giuseppe's shop was on the other side of town. Thankfully, he'd ordered a pair from Giuseppe yesterday, right after seeing the doctor. Harry had played it cool when he was with Steve, making it sound like a joke. But that was all just an act. Inside, he was freaking the fuck out. The pants got damaged when Harry stopped a bank robbery. God damn, he wanted to kill those bank robbers so much for what they did to his precious pants. But it was okay. Harry would take the damaged pants to Giuseppe. Maybe he could salvage them. Harry headed to Giuseppe's in the morning. He'd get the new pants before his shift started. That way he could relax. When he arrived, the pants were almost finished. Giuseppe was just putting on the finishing touches. Harry was mad, but he just sighed and said, No problem. I'll be back in 20 minutes. Outside Giuseppe's store, Harry tried to calm himself. He looked around for someone he could hassle. That always made him feel better. He looked around, racking his brain for a bullshit reason to accuse a minority for a crime. He couldn't think of anything. All Harry could think about were his pants. He didn't like the ones he was wearing. The fabric felt cheap and the fit was awful. Harry spotted a place that served hot dogs. It wasn't Jaffe's, but it would have to do. He gave up looking for a black person to fuck with and decided to get a brunch hot dog while he waited. With a wiener in his mouth, Harry sighed in relief. While he chewed, he looked out the window, checking to see if there was any crime happening. He couldn't spot any. Harry daydreamed. He thought about how good it would be if some guys robbed Giuseppe's store. That way, he would have an excuse to shoot guys. And maybe Giuseppe would be so thankful he would offer Harry free pants for life. Harry finished his hot dog and realized he should check in with the office. The nearest payphone Harry checked in and was told the chief wanted to see him. He checked his watch and realized that he'd lost track of time. Harry would need to call in a favor. He called dispatch and asked where the police helicopters were. One of the pilots owed Harry. The pilot was also a pants aficionado and Harry had hooked him up with Giuseppe. 
Dispatch told Harry one of the helicopters wasn't far away from him and his friend was the pilot. It was Harry's lucky day. He got Dispatch to put him through to the pilot's radio. The pilot agreed to pick Harry up and told him to be at the nearest baseball diamond. Harry had ten minutes. Harry hung up and ran for Giuseppe's. Back at Giuseppe's, the pants were finished. But Harry had no time to savor the moment. That would have to wait. Harry told Giuseppe he would wear the new pants. He paid Giuseppe, leaving his old pants on the floor. As he rushed out the door, Giuseppe called after him, Hey, Inspector, you left your old ones. Burn them, Giuseppe, or give them to the teeny boppers, Callahan called back, chuckling. Harry ran down the street, heading for the baseball diamond. As he ran, he enjoyed how the new pants felt as they rubbed against his thighs. Damn, that Giuseppe made a fine pair of pants. Harry saw the helicopter in the distance. He jumped the fence and ran out onto the field. Harry squinted as the wind whipped. The helicopter dropped down to the immaculate green grass. As he climbed inside, the pilot turned around and looked him up and down. Giuseppe's? the pilot asked. Harry smirked. Giuseppe's, he yelled back. As Harry strapped himself in, the helicopter lifted into the air. Worth every penny, the pilot said to himself. The helicopter flew swiftly across the city, passing the Ghirardelli chocolate sign in Aquatic Park. Fuck that, Harry thought. Giuseppe's should be the name up in neon. When they touched down at the police department, Harry jumped out. He opened the door to the front compartment, wishing to thank the pilot. As Harry leaned in, his grey-haired buddy Dusty snuck up behind him. When it was close enough, he gently patted Harry on the butt and whispered in his ears, Nice pants, Harry. Harry lived for these moments, when he could forget his wife and forget he was a cop. The Brute by David Dedrick. She was scared of him. He could tell. He hadn't done a damn thing, but she slightly shrank against the skincare items in the aisleway. He had been looking for some sort of moisturizer. A chick he'd met at the club the other night had recommended it. He didn't know he had bad skin until this beautiful girl had leaned over to whisper in his ear. Now here he was, standing in a drugstore in the skincare aisle, looking for something that would help with hyperpigmentation, the girl had called it. I don't even know what that is, he told her. She had just smiled and looked knowing in the din and flashing lights of the club. It was at that moment he knew he didn't have a chance and called it a night. Yet here he was, looking at moisturizers and scaring white ladies. He smiled and asked gently, Do you know if any of this stuff has hydroquinoin? Her eyes widened and she stared up at him. I don't even know what that is, she said. He left the aisle empty-handed. You and me both, lady, he thought. Then he found himself standing in the candy aisle checking out the chocolate bars. As if by magic, he smiled to himself. He was a big man, tall and broad-shouldered. He could be mistaken for heavy set, but he was solid muscle. Muscles developed through a rigorous training program, relentlessly followed, but still, he had a weakness for chocolate bars. He picked a baby Ruth. It wasn't his favorite, but it seemed appropriate. He had a job later in the day involving a baseball bat. As a kid, he had cajoled and pleaded with his long-suffering mama for pocket change, But she, a poor woman, who scraped by as a washerwoman and housemaid, could only shake her head at him more often than not. It had broken her heart, and she had cried the day his shoplifting had turned into armed robbery and he was sent up. But it wasn't her fault. Anyway, it was at Reformatory that he had learned his true calling. His sizable fists had found employment there, and he'd left with a little education and a lot of money. The cashier slid his change across the counter and gave him a shy smile, or so it seemed. She probably didn't see many black men in three-piece suits here, he thought. Not in this neighborhood, anyway. Listen, 
he started to say, but stopped. Forget it, he thought to himself. He turned away, half disgusted by his own cowardice. Anyway, he had a lot on his plate that day. Two beatings for Morris, unpaid loans of course, and later that afternoon, a private beating. That was a weird one. Just some guy who wanted to get beat up. Probably sexual, he reflected. Better wear some old grubs. You never knew with those guys. Out on the sidewalk, he dug a dime out of his vest pocket and walked over to the payphone. He dropped it in the slot and dialed his office. As he listened to the rings, he glanced over at Carl, his driver, waiting patiently beside his big black caddy. Carl was small and untrustworthy and in every other way useless, but he knew not to ask questions. Also, it pleased him to be driven by a white man, even though that white man was Carl. Marcus Brown and Associates, a bright voice said. Hello, Janet, he said. Oh, hello, Mr. Brown. I thought you were coming into the office today. There are some papers here for you to sign. Mr. Siegelman dropped them by yesterday afternoon. He sighed. I'll be in tomorrow. He had quite a bit of trouble obtaining liability insurance. No matter how carefully he explained it, no one seemed to be able to understand that he needed insurance in case of accidental death by beating. I've been doing this for many years, he would say, and no one has died yet, but a businessman needs to indemnify himself against frivolous lawsuits. At one of his meetings, the agent had blinked and repeated, frivolous. On another occasion, the agent turned pale and quickly left the meeting. Janet later said he had made a lot of noises in the bathroom. Finally, Siegelman, his lawyer, said he would look after it for him. Still, it was frustrating to be a business pioneer and have to deal with so much ignorance. Any messages, he asked? No. I was hoping the three o'clock would cancel. Not yet. Ugh. Driving all that way to some industrial wasteland, he whined. Janet was unsympathetic. You do it all the time, she said. I know. He looked at the billboard across the street. The smiling woman reminded him of the drugstore cashier. Why can't people just get beat up in their apartments? At least I could sit down and rest afterwards. Mr. Brown, I have a lot of invoicing to do this afternoon before I go home today. Well, depending how long my three o'clock is, I might drop by the office later. Suit yourself, she said, and hung up the phone. Janet was a good employee, but wasn't a very sympathetic person. It was hard to imagine her letting you put your head on her lap while you told her about your day, or her gently stroking your bruised and bloodied knuckles. Impulsively, he returned to the drugstore and walked up to the cashier. She was ringing through a customer, but he interrupted. Holding out his business card to her, he shyly stammered, Maybe you'd like to go out some evening. She took the card from his hand and he quickly left. Breathing heavily on the sidewalk, he regained his composure and walked over to Carl, who was holding the door open. Let's split, he said. Later, the cashier looked at the business card. Marcus Brown and Associates. Personal injury. Hmm. A lawyer, she thought, then carefully slipped the card into the pocket of her smock. When Harry Met Scorpio by Daniel Thompson. Inspector Callahan was hot on the trail of Scorpio. The mayor had told him to back off, but Callahan knew better. And he knew he couldn't let Scorpio kill again. Scorpio had slipped into an old theater, one of those that showed movies that had been out for a while. The matinee was some cowboy flick called A Fistful of Dollars. Callahan had never seen it. He didn't have time to watch non-pornographic movies. There was too much crime to stop. Callahan paid for his ticket and slipped into the theater. The theater was empty but for Scorpio, so the inspector found a comfortable seat a few rows back. 
After a few minutes of watching the tediously clothed actors on screen, Scorpio rose out of his seat and raised his hands into the air. Without a moment's hesitation, Callahan drew his trusty Model 29, pulled the hammer back with a click, and snarled, Easy there, cowboy. Scorpio slowly raised his hands higher, into the path of the projector's rays. The flickering light of the regrettably clothed actors illuminated the handcuffs on Scorpio's wrists. Scorpio said in a wavering voice, I'm just here to talk. We'll see about that, Callahan growled, as he slowly approached Scorpio. When he reached Scorpio, it was clear he was still recovering from the beating that had been pinned on Callahan. After a quick pat-down, he took his handcuffs and cuffed Scorpio to a chair. Talk, Scorpio. It's... it's Raphael. It's Raphael, responded Scorpio nervously. I don't care. You know those reporters really hate you, pigs? Everyone asked who you were. Not one of them asked for my name. I'm anonymous, and you're the famous villain. Then why are you talking to me? To gloat? No, Scorpio looked down. I want out. You're going to confess and turn yourself in, Callahan laughed. We both know this is going to end with you dead in a ditch. It's just this has gotten all out of hand, Scorpio looked down at the ground, remorse starting to spread across his face. And you may kill me, but unless I, I kill someone first, in front of witnesses, you're going to prison for murder. The media's on my side. They'll crucify you. And what? I'm just going to let you go? Let a killer go free? F -f Follow me. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. You could even fake my death. Be a hero. And think of how many other killers will go free if you kill me without proof. I'll control you. Callahan dropped his guard and holstered the revolver. And if you kill while you're taking some children hostage, I'll be able to make the mayor take the justice seriously. Uh, and, and I just ask one thing. You're not in a position to ask anything. But, but please. Scorpio bent his head down. I want to do some good to repay for the bad things I've done. I'm listening, Callahan said while playing with the latch on his holster, ready to draw at a moment's notice. The, there's a mine where I live with unsafe practices. If our shootout happens there, we can expose the bad practices in this facility and prevent some mesothelioma. Ah, a hippie, Callahan smiled. I know what your new life is going to be, Raphael. You're going to be a politician, a good old-fashioned Texas Republican. You'll spend your life destroying your hippie world. Horror came over Scorpio's face before he steeled himself. All right, I'll do it. And Raphael isn't going to cut it. Callahan pulled the idea out of Scorpio's pocket and read the name. Raphael Edward Cruz. We'll just call you Ted Cruz and you'll be a good Republican. Or everyone will know that Ted Cruz is the Scorpio killer. Harry and Norma, Getting It On, by Karen Sims. Few people know what happened off-screen with Harry and Norma. We know Harry leaned closely over Norma when he opened the door to the stairway from her husband Chico's weird alfresco hospital. But what happened after they got to the bottom of the stairs, and Harry revealed his wife died in a car accident. Every woman on the planet knows Harry's revelation is code for, I'm alone now and need company. Norma's no fool. She gets the message. She whips off that lime green PVC coat that doubles as a sauna and suggests they go back to his house. Harry doesn't live in a house, though. He's in a crummy apartment that has barely changed since his wife died. Her nightie is still under her pillow. The apartment is dark with low ceilings, making Harry even taller. They sit on the fabric couch with large wooden armrests, 
Enormous Sips god-awful white wine, courtesy of a sympathy hamper sent from the police union when Harry's wife died. Harry necks a beer, not something he does often, due to his philosophy of fun being a weakness. Norma tries to spark conversation, but the large wooden armrests give more away. As she talks, she's tossing up the possibilities. Is sex on the cards? She would have liked to shower. The coat sauna effects persist. And an arranged date would have given her time to draw up a list of conversational topics customized for a good-looking inspector with the expansiveness of, well, large wooden armrests. Norma's forte isn't spontaneity, and as she desperately tries to create conversations that are interesting and don't verge on including his dead partner and her possibly soon-to-be-dead partner, she's flailing. They've gone through hometowns, high schools, favorite music, and no, really, this wine is lovely. What's left? How big is your gun? Norma leans back into the couch, tosses up her options, looks up at that icy, handsome man, and says to herself, Yeah, nah. Marcella Platt, Bus Driver by Jonathan Carlyle. I tried to tell them, anyone who would listen, and even some who didn't, the parents, the other teachers, the custodian, but I couldn't back down. Even when I was brought before the school board, I knew my job was at stake. I had pushed too many buttons, tangoed with the wrong people. I couldn't keep my mouth shut. After all, I was the only one there with the education and experience to make the most informed decision. Someone had to protect the children. Someone had to give them a voice. Of course, those who fought against me accused me of just the opposite. As a music teacher, it was my job to teach the children rhythm, melody, harmony. Well, it was harmony that I sought to preserve. Not the harmony of music, per se, but the harmony of life. Seven the biblical number of completion, of perfection, a prime number, an odd number. And this was the problem. It had been a long-held theory of mine that a small choir of seven was the ideal number of voices. A well-rehearsed group of seven would inspire creation itself and bring healing to all that may hear it. I had begun to work this theory out with the children in small groups, building up to the seven, daring never to add my voice as the eighth. Some parents had a problem with this. There was always an odd man out. Should I have just favored above or below? There could have been even pairs, but I couldn't risk it. Six is a tease, and eight is straight to chaos. In the end, it did cost my position, but I did maintain a job with the school. Now, my classroom was mobile, and I saw my class twice a day. Most days I had to dispense discipline more often than composition, but my audience was quiet and captive. It was a rare day that afforded me a moment with the perfect count, the perfect seven, no more, no less. But every once in a while, a child stays home sick, or an extra one is riding home with a friend. Today looks to be one of those days, a perfect day on bus number 157. Meeting Downtown by Joel Cruz Harry was in a bad mood. This wasn't unusual, as he was frequently in bad moods. But given what was going on around him, his mood was even worse than usual. 
He'd had a phone call early that morning from Bressler to meet him and the chief at the mayor's office in downtown San Francisco, which immediately bugged him as he knew he was going to be grilled by at least two of them. Callahan had an intense dislike of politics and politicians. He'd met the mayor before and wasn't overly impressed. The man was arrogant and dismissive, all smiles and sunshine to the media and the voting public, but totally different behind closed doors where he treated men like Callahan like garbage. Bressler was also not always to Harry's liking. He'd known him for over 20 years, back when they were rookies walking the beat. Even back then, Harry knew that Bressler was ambitious and would step over his own mother to get promoted, which in the end he did, much to Harry's disgust and, surprisingly, relief. Thinking about his potential grilling at the hands of the mayor whilst getting ready to go downtown, he wasn't nervous. Harry didn't get nervous, but rather annoyed, and it would take every ounce of self-control for him not to bite back if things got heated, which no doubt they would. He knew he had an attitude problem. He'd been told numerous times over the years, but it didn't bother him, nor those around him, except for people like Bressler, or an old girlfriend who had frequently told him his attitude stunk. The situation at present wasn't doing the San Francisco police or Callahan any favors. The assassin, known simply as Scorpio, was running amok, gunning down innocent people whilst demanding large amounts of money which the city of San Francisco could simply not afford. Something had to give, and Harry knew it. He showered and skipped breakfast, as he frequently did, although he did have a cup of coffee. Black, no sugar, as always. He got in his car, the same car he'd had for 15 years, and drove downtown to the mayor's office. The traffic was terrible, as usual, but he was in no hurry. The three of them could wait. The city felt tense. He'd picked up on that immediately. These random shootings had sent the city into a panic, and the mayor and the citizens of San Francisco wanted answers. Callahan understood this, but he wasn't in the miracles department. He had his own method of policing, which some would say was archaic and out of touch in today's times. He finally reached the mayor's office and parked his car. He saw a brown-nosing Bressler on the balustrade. He bet the chief's presence would be there as well. The chief was a real cop, and understood Harry better than anyone, if that was at all possible. He took the palatial stairs up to the mayor's office. He'd rather avoid the elevator, which would be crammed with people public servants, probably, more people than he could stand. He walked into the mayor's office. It was clean, super clean. It smelled like it had just been disinfected, and it almost made Harry gag. He knew he was going to be in for a hard time here. People were dying, and he knew it. But if the mayor was going to treat him like dirt, he'd happily return the favor. After all, they didn't call him Dirty Harry for nothing. An Occurrence at Landsper Trestlebridge by Jonathan Bampton. Harry dusted the last of some fine dust from his brown suit jacket. He was now standing securely on the old Trestle Railway Bridge near Corte Madera Creek. The school bus should pass by here soon if his calculations were anything to go by, and they always were. Scorpio might think this detour to Santa Rosa Airport would throw the rest of the department off, but not Harry. The inspector's body percolated in the heavy sun. The three-piece suit he wore had been picked out by his wife only a week before the day she never came home. Eight years ago now. Christ. They'd spent a full afternoon around North Beach one Sunday after church. He'd just been promoted to inspector, 
and his wife insisted they buy him a new suit to match. If you insist, dear. They'd come across Giuseppe's on Vallejo, and bought what he now wore proudly. The man had been his tailor ever since. He still always found an excuse to visit Giuseppe's, even if it was just to browse. It was funny the things he kept up to remind him of his wife, and funny the things he now assiduously avoided so as not to remind him. He'd never once been back to church, for instance. That was her thing. Maybe he should pay Saints Peter and Paul a visit. He'd been to the funeral of Officer Collins down in Daly City, but somehow didn't feel comfortable going to the dead priest's own novena for some reason. What to say? He still owed Mary Larch a dinner, too, the chief's wife. He felt the chief's presence all the time, particularly when he was with Al. Over the course of this Scorpio business, the apparitions were becoming even more vivid. His old boss even seemed to speak to him, warned him against unleashing a bloodbath against Scorpio. Sometimes he thought Al felt the presence, too. At other times he saw Al sneak a look at him, as if to say, Where are you now? It seemed the chief would often turn away from the occupants of the room, or look down, as if he was embarrassed. Ashamed, probably, at how they had to kowtow to the mayor. The mayor should listen to us, goddammit. Fearless and frank advice. The chief used to let Harry talk, and if need be, to talk back. Al could now interrupt Harry mercilessly in order to curry favor with the municipality. Oh, Al, I was the favorite son, don't you remember? The heir apparent? Harry found himself referring to Al as Bressler these days. Sigh. Even from beyond the mortal coil, the chief's bugbears were still the same, lint on his dress blues being one of the most repeated complaints. You'd think a ghost would have other things to worry about. His fixation with his elephant gun? Harry sort of understood. An ancestor of the chief's had been deputized to patrol the Embarcadero Wars with it shortly after the gold rush, apparently. When he was alive... He'd always kept it in his office, and semi-seriously suggested Harry should use it on a few stings. He had bequeathed the gun to Harry, and it remained mothballed in the inspector's ironing cupboard. He had almost taken it on the rooftop against Scorpio, but had cold feet at the last minute. What if it jammed? Come on, come on, where was the bus? Maybe Harry had got Scorpio wrong. All they could see were VW Beetles. God, there were a lot of them around these days. Nazi crap. So many lowlifes these days, Harry thought to himself. Maybe it's just as well the boss is no longer around. He looked down at his watch. Hurry up, Scorpio, you great turd. The chief had been onto something when he said nuts had repetitive patterns. This case had proved that. He hadn't thought this much about the chief in months. He could really have used him in the mayor's office earlier. Typical. The chief was never there when Harry needed him. Not on Bressler's couch after the Mount Davidson fuck-up. Not at Kizar Stadium to offer some counsel. Hopefully Chief wasn't around last night. He'd almost made it with Chico's wife, but he'd pulled back before he could cut his exiting partner's lunch. Harry almost never felt his old boss's presence outside the polished wooden walls of City Hall, ironically, much like the type of coffin his widow had picked out for him to be buried in. He hadn't thought this much about the Chief in months. He looked down at the road below him. Wow, he was up pretty high. Better not fuck this up. He'd have to go fix up his will sometime soon. He'd heard of a lawyer... Siegelman, who did wills and testaments on the cheap. Hell, he didn't have much to bequeath, and nobody much to leave it to. A sister in the Midwest, a retired nurse he hadn't talked to in years. An owl flew overhead. An owl? In the bright light of a sunny day? Strange. But he didn't have time to think. He glanced up and saw a yellow school bus in the medium distance, driving simultaneously erratically, but also with purpose. Bus number 157 would soon be underneath him. Get ready, Callahan. 
Nearly here. Now, jump, like George Reeves. Just so you know, okay. uh, Jonathan is the host of the Dirty Harry Minute. And someone has to be. Good yes. for him. <laughs> Taking that on. And uh, it was very nice being on the show uh, because we had to do nothing except give a clip <laughs> from the, our show. We just, bl- we just blabbed. Really enjoyed, yeah, I love the amount of work we had to do for that. That was fantastic. <laughs> More of that, please. <laughs> okay, uh, so now we're moving on to... Everything reminds me of Dirty Harry. So... I recently re-watched Bullet. Now, people often compare Dirty Harry unfavorably to Bullet, which I've never got. Um, the Bullet... Bullet is okay. It's no French Connection, and it's certainly no Dirty Harry. Um, watching it, in fact, the trailer, sort of sort of a proto-Dirty Harry goes, Some other kind of cop. Pity the man he works for. And uh, McQueen says, you work your side of the street and I'll work mine. It reminded me that um, McQueen often decried himself as an actor. He said, I'm a re-actor. And prided himself on finding the coolest way of doing everyday things. And that's Clint Eastwood, isn't it? Um, The movie had a lot of similarities with Dirty Harry, actually. Both of uh, the hero cops eating food on the run. In McQueen's version, it's hospital. Uh, at the hospital, he's eating milk and sandwiches. Uh, both movies feature an African-American doctor. Harry defies Miranda rights, whereas McQueen defies a writ of habeas corpus and refuses to hand over the body. Um, Harry really has to drill down on the doctor to remember where Scorpio lives, and uh, Eastwood uh, McQueen does a similar thing in the hotel. He has to get the clerk to recall more information. You know, what happened? What did you see? Who came in? Both movies have shots of the Safeway supermarket, the marina. Both of them have chase scenes in dark basements. Um, Kizar Stadium for Dirty Harry and the hospital for McQueen um, where again someone has a screwdriver or, or some sort of implement uh, taped to his leg like uh, Harry does and there's also the the exchange between McQueen and his and uh, Jacqueline Bissett where he's just saying doesn't it reach you all this madness you're living in a sewer and uh, how can you live how can you live like this? Which is sort of reminiscent of um, of Harry and Norma, I guess. Or even that sort of scene with uh, Pacino in Heat. So, yeah. Dirty Harry did some of the bullet things. So, how can Dirty Harry be bad? End. Well, and I, so that brought to mind that I recently... Uh, guessed it on the Dirty Harry Minute. And mm-hmm. we, we watched some of that... And Don Siegel, the director of that, if you watch it when Dirty Harry's running, his shots are very wide open, 
or maybe it was the flip side. There's always something in his path where the bad guy was always the exact opposite. And I think that's what this is, is putting that object in our path. And if you watch this, as they go down the stairs, eventually Same they, thing, the, yeah, there's always the something yeah. in front of them, kind of a barrier where it feels oppressive. There's no room to move in these scenes. Well, that's it from us. We'll catch you next time at the movies.